you have to leave yourself some margin for error. Just because the engine doesn't rattle on the dyno doesn't mean that you're home free to experience the glory of a well-tuned engine. You still want to have a margin of error and maybe you leave that 20 or 30 horsepower on the table. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Jay from Real Street. Now, Real Street is a premier supplier of performance aftermarket parts, particularly based, of course, in the US. And Jay has a unique skill set in that he is both a performance engine builder as well as an engine tuner. And it's not too often that we see uh, both sides of this particular coin. Jay's also just as passionate as we are at High Performance Academy about education in the performance aftermarket. He's got a great YouTube channel where he shares tricks and tips on all number of platforms. This is a really interesting dive into engine building, engine development. We touch on engine tuning. There's also an element of what it takes to build up a reputable and successful aftermarket parts supply business in an industry which is admittedly reasonably cutthroat. Before we get into our chat with Jay though, for those who are new to the HPA Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to to tune engines, how to build engines, how to construct wiring harnesses, as well as race driving, race car setup and data analysis, just to name a few. You can see a full breakdown of all of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. But relevant to today's topic in particular, I'll just focus on our engine building courses. We've got two here that if you like today's chat, you may find really interesting. The first is our engine building fundamentals course, which as its name implies, covers the fundamentals behind engine building. You'll learn how the engine operates, the parts inside it. You'll learn about the machining operations that are required. You'll learn about the clearances and tolerances. And basically, everything you need to know about engine building that is generic. This is not specific to a individual platform. From here if you want to go a little deeper and maybe start constructing your own performance engines and I promise it's not as hard as many of you may be thinking, we've got our practical engine building course. And I know that when you first get your parts back from the machinist it can be a little bit daunting knowing what to do first or what order to progress in and what we've done is taken the difficulty out of that with the HPA 10 step engine building process. By doing this, breaking the entire job down into 10 bite sized steps, each of those individual steps is quick and relatively easy to complete. Follow that through from start to finish in no time you've got a completely assembled engine. You're going to have the confidence that all of the clearances inside, the tolerances, the parts you've selected are fit for purpose. So you're going to know that when it comes to turning the key for the first time, it's going to start, it's going to run and it's going to offer great power, great torque and most importantly great reliability. Again this course is generic so it doesn't matter if you're building a 2JZ, a Honda B18C, a supercharged LS3 or basic anything in between. We also have a library of worked examples where you can watch that 10 step process being applied 
from start to finish. We'll put a link to those courses in the show notes and as an HPA tuned in podcast listener, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 at checkout. That's going to get you $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course. Again, link in the show notes. All right, enough with our introduction. Let's get into our chat with Jay now. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thanks for joining us today. And well, you're a pretty big name in the US market for building, modifying cars, supplying parts, racing, just about anything that involves the automotive scene. Uh, I'd like to basically get a bit of an understanding of where you got started, what your background was, and, and how you got interested in cars in the first place, if we can. Okay. Um, I think I'm probably a lot like most people when it came to getting into cars uh, at a very young age. It was just kind of an infatuation and the desire to understand, you know, why some cars were faster or sounded differently than others. And you, you know, you just start, I guess, inching towards the day you turn 16 and you can buy something to drive. And then shortly thereafter, Maybe you find your way to a nitrous kit or some intake manifold, you know, you just, you know, get to the racetrack and see the reality of how uh, slow a car is, you know, going back into the nineties, there wasn't the cars that are available nowadays. So things were quite slow and then you just start modifying them and one thing gives way to another. What sort of platform did you get started with in terms of car brand? Well, I was, uh, believe it or not, I was really heavy into air-cooled Volkswagen Beetles did not see that coming. Yeah, yeah. I just it was a it was a thing. It still kind of is a thing. They're on the list. It's just they've worked their way down the list a bit. And then um, having to choose between the American Pony Car Mustang or Camaro, I landed in a Mustang, and that was uh, something that was fairly simple to modify. And part availability was generally good, and they weren't really that powerful. But you know, you're a kid; you don't know any better, so you know you could you could have a little bit of fun. Okay, so you're probably most well known for your work and parts that you supply for the import brands, although I understand you, you do cover just about anything and everything. I, I normally find people as enthusiasts, they sort of gravitate to one one brand and, and kind of stick there and become pretty defiant of, of that brand or any others that might be out there. So in the US market, that might be uh, imports or you go domestic. Sounds like you started out domestic and then switched over. So can you, you talk to us about how that worked? Yeah, I had worked for a gentleman uh, for about a decade. And as that relationship started to change and or deteriorate, I went out on my own. And at that point, you know, you could build a modular Ford engine and it paid a certain wage, or you could build a Subaru engine and it paid nearly the same wage, but it was an easier job to do. And um, there wasn't really a lot of local support for that community, but there was a lot of engines that broke because that's, you know, they, they get overtuned and you know, the timing maps were getting normalized, so they didn't have anywhere to run when they got to knocking and this, they just blew up. So I had a, a steady stream of Subaru engines to build. And I owned a Toyota Supra at the time, and I had a couple of customers with Supras. And then, you know, as those cars needed engines, it was just another fairly easy transition for me. Like, I don't think that the early modular Fords are horrible engines, but they certainly have a lot of 
hardware and components for an arguably low level of output compared to, say, a Jay-Z. So the, the transition was pretty simple to make. And I still supported the Subaru line for a number of years. And then when they're, when the work just kept coming for the Jay-Z stuff and I got hooked up with my business partners, that really uh, accelerated the course into mostly uh, to Jay-Z. Sure. I mean, I guess you go always where the, the work leads you. It makes sense. Let's take a step back. I'm interested in sort of understanding what formal qualifications you had around, obviously you, you're working on engines, building engines. Is, is there anything formal there in terms of your background or is this all self-taught? I would say mostly self-taught. There's an, uh, a man here in Orlando named Scott Newberry that has an engine machine shop and I met him as a teenager and he was always, he would speak to you in code, but if you would stand around long enough, he would teach you a lot. So he was a very good mentor in the dynamics of what it takes to get an engine to live pretty well and how to identify what has gone wrong once it's gone wrong to try to avoid uh, repeating the cycle of you know breaking the engine. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a couple of really good points that I want to pick up on there, one around identifying a, a, a failure mode. But before we get into that, one of the things that, that comes up as a topic of, topic of conversation, particularly in our engine building webinars, is you know, do, do you need a formal qualification? Obviously, you, you've just suggested that no, in fact, you don't. And I sort of separate engine building almost into two camps. And I, I see them as being quite different. So if you want to become an engine reconditioner or engine machinist, well, yes, there is going to be a formal qualification path here in New Zealand. You'd go to a polytechnic or a trade school, do your hours there, and you're, you'd then go out and, and get an apprenticeship and basically learn that way. And it might be a four-year uh, adventure to, to get your qualification. And that's that's absolutely fine. There's some very talented and skilled engine machinists and reconditioners out there. What I would say is that for the most part, at least here in New Zealand, 99.9% of the time they are probably working on low horsepower, naturally aspirated factory engines. And if you took them a 2JZ and said, hey, I want 2,000 horse at the wheels, they probably wouldn't know where to start. And the sort of components we need, the clearances and tolerances we're working with at the 2,000 horsepower level are, are chalk and cheese compared to at the 150 horsepower uh, sort of vicinity. Do, do you agree with, with that sort of take on, on the situation? Yeah, I think that there are guys that are really well trained and understand how to replicate the requests that a service manual has in it. And they can put a car back into a functioning working condition that the customer can experience at least as much life as the engine did before it broke. And, and that man is doing a good job to, to be able to supply that to his customer. And then when you get into performance automotive and you, you highly elevate the stress level that the components are under, you're going to get into situations of identifying deflection identifying abnormal wear, hopefully catching things as they're deteriorating and not just waiting to have a pile of, you know, rubble to, to throw in the garbage bin, you know? So I would not recommend to a younger person to take the path I did. I think that it just took too long, you know, at 44 years old, it's like, man, I could have sped my life up a, a good decade with, um, with having proper training. And, you know, you, 
even your business model itself uh, speeds up people's uh, learning curves quite a bit. So, you know, no sense in taking the long road. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think everyone wants to get the the right results in the in the least possible time, and I mean, there's a there's a cost benefit for doing that as well. I, I just want to add because I, I don't want people listening to sort of think I, I'm I'm knocking the formal qualification path. I, I mean, it's definitely a valid path. I think what I would say and what I maybe poorly added was or got to was that there's a, a level of a lack of knowledge still to get from rebuilding those factory engines to building a performance engine. So that's the sort of the bridge that you need to build if you want to get to that level. The other aspect I would say as well, as an engine builder, I don't deal with machining myself. I, I, I wouldn't know how to bore and hone a block. I understand the process, but I couldn't physically operate the machines. And as part of that apprenticeship program for an engine machinist, there's a lot that goes into that. And, and I don't want to take away from that as well. Like understanding how to do that work to a high level, a high standard is absolutely critical for uh, me to actually be able to build a, a quality engine. And I'm not sure, are you doing any of your own machining or are you relying on outwork for that? No, I rely on the same kind of group of guys over the course of about the last 10 years. And we're very hand in hand in, I see this, what do you see? And then we say, okay, we're seeing the same thing. What can we do about it? You know, we have a really good team operation in that regard, where as, you know, someone coming into this and, and going to the guy that you mentioned before, the guy that just does an OEM style rebuild, a customer could really get themselves in a bind because they don't know what to ask for. And then the man behind the counter doesn't know what to give them. Yeah, You know, so I'm very fortunate to have access to the experienced talent that I do to be able to provide good known results without having to do a lot of uh, experimentation. Sure. Now, the other point you mentioned there is is failure analysis. And, and this is something that, that I've seen a lot of people overlook. And what I'm getting at here is is quite often we'll be rebuilding an engine that has suffered some kind of failure. Maybe it's mechanical, maybe it's tune related, whatever that may be. And if you aren't kind of aware and, and sort of looking outside the box as you're starting to strip that engine, looking for telltale signs, it can be very easy to go through an expensive rebuild, uh, put a whole lot of new components in the engine simply to have it fail again in fairly quick order. And obviously that's the absolute worst case scenario. No one wants an engine failure to occur in the first place, but at least we should be learning from that and, and ensuring that it doesn't happen again. So I'm interested, what sort of things are you looking for? What are, what are the key sort of signs or telltales you, you're seeing when you're stripping an engine that has had a failure? Well, if you've caught the failure early enough on and you may be looking for a heat-related failure, if the engine didn't have enough fuel running through it, or if it didn't have um, a proper a proper strategy to maintain uh, oil temperature and coolant temperature, so there's one kind of failure mode, and then another failure mode would just be uh, from detonation. You know, a lot of these cars, I guess you could say, due to their their ignorance, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm putting anyone down because I'm not, but if you don't know, you don't know. So. You know, what you could get away with on a, a dyno may be very different than what you'll get away with in operation. And you've got to be able to understand, well, maybe on the dyno, the engine made a peak power and did not respond to anything over 
a timing value. You could say for conversation's sake, say that timing value is 15 degrees. So you ran it at 15, it made some horsepower number. You ran it at 16, it made the same. You're like, okay, I'll just leave it at 15. Well, the thing may only live on the road, you know, or racetrack at, at 12 degrees, you know, so you've got to kind of give yourself some cushion and let the car, uh, you know, live a decent life, which I think that having, you know, my business partner, Gio, he, he really was an incredible person to work with when it came to finding the limits and being able to walk the line very well, because we would put a car together and he would go run the car the way he operates a vehicle, which is, you know, aggressively. I mean, the guy really just likes to ring them out. And I would say, well, we'll run it for a little while. Then we're going to take it apart and look at it. And he would say, it's running fine. Why do you want to take it apart and look at it? And I'm like, well, we're at a power level. That's, you know, 4X factory. Let, let's let's take a peek and see what's going on. And you could say like, okay, maybe that connecting rod and piston design are a bit heavy for the oil pressure that we have available because I can start to see this mark on the bottom of the con- the connecting rod bearing that wasn't there when the piston was lighter. And, you, you know, you can really start to um, fine tune a program that way versus waiting till everything's junk. And then you just have this pile of junk and you're, and you're guessing. So me, I think one of the things that really, really helped me was having the opportunity to uh, run an engine and take it apart and look at it. I, I think that's something that a lot of people won't get the opportunity to do because they're maybe building one engine and they're probably going to run it until it actually suffers a catastrophic failure and they're forced to do something. Uh, I, I remember when we were running our 4G63 drag engine program, I mean, nothing at the level of, of what you're producing in terms of uh, 2JZs, but at the time, because we were getting good results here in New Zealand, I, I had uh, about four or five pretty good customers that we were doing the same specification 4G63 engine and sort of essentially every season we'd get the engines back and we'd go through them and manage to strip them and inspect them and and you do start to see these these little signs like if the engine started to beat up on the bearings or something of that nature you know, you, you get to pick up on those sorts of things before it actually results in, in a c- catastrophic failure and you're you it, I'm guessing exactly like you it allows you to sort of develop and you know learn from that and then go the next iteration and make some small changes to help try and improve that I mean I think one of the things, not trying to get too far away from where we were going with this, but you know, particularly in terms of um, engine oil clearance, which is one of the areas where I think a very high performance engine quite often will uh, differ from a factory specification. You know, people hold a crankshaft that's sitting on the bench, and everything's nice and, and rigid and stiff, and you can't really imagine that that component flexing much. Likewise, the the engine block, everything seems absolutely rigid, but of course. When you're running the engine at 10,000 RPM and, and punching out sort of, you know, two and a half thousand horsepower, something like that, everything's flexing and moving around. So sometimes a, a little bit of additional oil clearance over what a factory specification may be might work. But in some instances, that may not work. So there's, there's a learning curve that goes into uh, developing an engine for a different uh, level of performance. You, you'd agree? Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, for me, I've always seen it in my head as kind of a cartoon with what is going on with the engine as it's under stress. So when you start to understand that, yes, things are going to deflect more, you can open up that oil clearance, but you better have the oil flow available. So what do you have for a pump? You've got to find a balance and, um, 
especially if the engine if the engine is fitted with a dry sump, then you have a a luxurious life when it comes to dealing with oil flow, oil cooling, the quality of the oil flowing through the engine. But if you're using a factory wet sump system, and um, those are your limitations, you have to be able to kind of examine the parts and understand how it's going to live. And, and until you as a builder and or tuner understand how it's going to live, you want to be uh, careful with it. And, and you're going to take a look at it, things and see how it's living before you break it. Sure. And just, just to paraphrase for maybe those who, who aren't sort of uh, picking up all of the pieces of that last little conversation, essentially what you're mentioning there is as we increase the bearing clearance what that essentially does is allows a freer path for the oil that's being pumped into that uh, cavity between the journal and the and the bearing to sort of flow out the side. So there's less restrictions. So all things being equal, if we just open up the oil clearances, we're likely to see a drop in oil pressure. So we need to maintain a sufficient flow from our oil pump in order to to also maintain solid oil pressure, correct? Yeah, you don't have a really good way of measuring oil flow. And if you have an oil pump configuration that isn't suffering uh, cavitation on the inlet side and your oil in the pan is calm enough to be in a liquid state, then you know you want to be moving as much oil through the engine as you can. So the, the, you know, the pump has a displacement. And unfortunately for a lot of engines, if you're getting gross over the pump's um, ability to feed, say it's a Gerotor style pump or something like that, where it has a feed timing component to getting the oil in the pump, then opening or changing the oil clearance won't have as much of a positive benefit because you're, you don't have the oil flow, but you know, we're balancing uh, pressure and flow because no one really knows while the engine's running, where is the oil bump uh, bypass located? Like, is the bypass closed? Is the bypass open? You know, if you could get to where you're moving all the oil that the pump can uh, physically displace and the bypass is staying closed, because when the bypass opens, then you're you're just beating that oil up as it circulates. You know, you, the bypass would be closed. You'd have all the oil flow you'd have available and you'd have an oil clearance that would accommodate that pump uh, volume because as the oil is going down the crankshaft, it's carrying away the friction and the heat and um, keeping those parts from touching down because you've got the thing in this dynamic state. You know, you just said 10,000 RPM. Like if you go back in time, just a couple of decades, I mean, 10,000 RPM was a pretty tall order. And because the valve train in a overhead cam engine will generally allow you to eclipse the 8,000 RPM mark without any real liability. You know, if you have a push rod engine and you're trying to turn the thing 8,000 RPM, well, you've got to kind of have your act together because the valve train will fall out of it. But an overhead cam engine, we could really get to some elevated engine speeds and, uh, and get ourselves in trouble because we never had to worry about the valve train because the valve train is so stable right out of the box. Sure. So we're blessed to have uh, the RPM capacity we do in an overhead cam engine, but if you neglect the oiling system and how the oiling system keeps the engine alive, you could get in trouble in in, in fairly short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'm, I'm interested in your take on uh, oil oil weights, oil viscosities versus pressure versus the, the oil clearance. I mean, obviously you've talked about the flow from the pump, which was really the, the key element there. You've got to have enough flow to generate pressure, but that pressure will also be affected to a degree uh, by changing the oil viscosity. And quite often, at least I've gone heavier in the oil viscosity than an OE specification. Um, do, do you sort of do something similar or what's your take on oil viscosities? I think that the heavier oil is a um, an acceptable patch that we've all kind of come to get away with. You know, most of these engines, if you have a cam in cylinder head, there's no bearing. You're just riding directly on the cylinder head. Those clearances are generally pretty tight. You, you could follow the inch a thousandths of journal size. So most engines will live just fine with a number like two thousandths of main clearance and two thousandths of rod clearance. Like that's a good, that's a great place to start. If you are getting into an engine and you don't have a lot of experience with it, you know, I think that the ring package is something that is worth discussing because those thick oils don't scrape off the bore as well. And you've, you've got to balance the oil weight that it takes to keep the bearings alive under the elevated stress and pressure that you're presenting, but you don't want to have oil so thick that the ring is unable to clear the bore well, you know, because you're balancing lubricating the bore and clearing the bore. You don't want it pumping oil because you don't want to have oil up in your uh, combustion. So the Napier hook oil ring has been a real blessing for us compared to the older style rings, but I guess you're balancing more than one thing because you have the ring set and its ability to control the oil. You have the bearing clearance in the bottom end of the engine that's managing your deflection and you don't want to have so thick of oil that it doesn't pump through the head well. So there's it's a multi-part balance to be found. I think what you've just mentioned is something that's really easy to overlook is that you can't think of of an engine in terms of one one aspect and or I'm going to do this and and that's going to fix it because there is a knock on effect. We've talked about the bearing clearance. We've then talked about the the flow capacity of the oil pump. Obviously, the viscosity, as we've talked about, can can be used to a degree to gain back some oil pressure that we'd otherwise lose. And then, as you've mentioned there, the knock on effect of then being able to clear that oil off the off the bores. So it is important to to understand. It, the implications of the decisions we're making when when we are making changes, and just to, just because to, you mentioned the the Napier hook style oil ring, any downsides in that style of of oil control ring? No, I think that that ring is uh, is a friend to all of us because you have a relatively low tension, but the way that it's designed, it has a good uh, ability to as the piston is going back down the bore, clearing the excess oil off. Okay, and, and I mean to be clear, if, if we're not able to clear that excess oil, we're going to end up with oil migrating into the combustion chamber. You're going to end up with uh, oil consumption, and the the other effect is I sort of always worry about with with that aspect, which I think is easy to overlook, is you know you get oil diluting your fuel air mixture, you're going to end up reducing the effective octane of that combustion charge which has its own knock-on effects in terms of potential for detonation correct yeah it is not a diesel engine you don't want to be using oil up there and you see this a lot in oil control and bore finish Uh, you know if you wanted to kind of like pick a gross illustration well if you took apart a 
modern DI engine and you look at the bore finish, and that's one bore finish and one strategy that is able to control oil extremely well while keeping the cylinder wall sealing as good as possible because the rings seal on oil. You know, it's not a metal on metal relationship. They need oil. And then if you, if you back that up and go a different direction into like an engine that's running a high volume fuel like methanol, well, the cylinder bore finish would be a lot different and you, you would have a different uh, ring approach because you have to, because you've got a ton of boost and you can't, you can easily fatigue a ring with high temperatures. So you may end up with a harder ring, different bore finish, but to what you were just saying, yeah, it's a, it's kind of an encompassing system to where someone that's just getting into this, that wants to have an engine built or is building an engine. You want to position yourself around some knowledge that way, whoever, whoever is helping you can, can share their experience and you're not having to figure this stuff out yourself because it's not like setting a watch, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that go on and um, you had better have them right, or you're going to incur additional expense to do it more than once. Yeah. Uh, another aspect that just sort of, I, I think I'll get your opinion on because it does play into this oil on the, the cylinder walls under piston oil squirters. And, and I've seen two, schools of thought on this which are polar opposites first of all for those who who don't understand what I'm talking about there it, it is exactly what its name implies uh, normally some form of little squirter that is hooked into the main oil gallery and it literally sprays uh, a mist of oil uh, up the bore the the intention generally from the OE perspective is that that mist of oil has a cooling effect on the underside of the piston uh, potential downsides as I see them are twofold uh, one we're getting a high volume of oil being pumped up into the cylinder into the bores and as we've discussed there uh, the potential to have more oil on the, the cylinder walls uh, the other one and, and this kind of also plays back into what we've been talking about. There's some volume of oil that is obviously now being sprayed up the bores. That volume of oil is is not making its way to the bearings. So there's a reduction in the volume of oil available for uh, supporting the bearings. So, yeah, two schools of thought. One, one, one school is they're great. They do a good job of cooling the underside of the pistons. Let's leave them in. Uh, the other school, no, we don't want them. Too much volume of oil up the bores. We want all of the oil volume making it to the bearings. Let's get rid of them. What's your take on that? I think that it's heavily dependent on whether or not the engine has a dry sump. At Bonneville, for example, you know, you have the engine under a high RPM for a long time. You have a lot of oil in the tank and you have a seven-stage daily oil pump that does a good job maintaining pan vac while pumping a large amount of oil. Well, I, I want pistons quarters for sure. If we have an engine that the guy's going to be doing burst racing, like uh, drag racing, and he has a an OEM configuration oil pump, and he's got a heavier than stock piston and rod because that's what it takes to get it to live under the stress, I will forego having the oil squirter because I'd rather have the oil protecting the bearing than the piston. And because the engine is only going to be run for six, seven, eight, ten seconds, you know, if the if the tuning is all right and he's got a alcohol-based fuel like ethanol or methanol, the piston's not really suffering from a temperature standpoint like you would be at Bonneville because you have an endurance you're more of an endurance setting out there versus drag racing. You just have to get it to live to the stripe. 
you know? So I guess it depends on where the engine's going to be operated, uh, what fuel is in it and, um, what the bore finish is like, because that oil, that additional oil coming out of the squirter on the bore, um, may really work to your advantage from keeping the engine from scuffing or helping it maintain seal. So there's not really a magic uh, bullet answer there, but I think that if you are seeing wear in the bearing and you don't have the budget or the vehicle can't be fitted with a dry sump, then I would rather have that oil pressure on the front line, helping the bearing stay alive. And I'll, I'll manage the piston temperature with fuel and see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that that probably echoes my my own sort of thoughts on it, particularly as you mentioned with the alcohol-based fuels, we do have the advantage of the cooling properties of the fuel. So you know, it, it is easier to to keep the piston temperatures under control than if we're running on a, a gasoline-based fuel, uh, maybe for a road race application in particular, where the engine's going to be beat up on hard lap after lap for maybe 15 or 20 minute periods. And, and that sort of you know, crosses over to, to what you were saying about the, the Bonneville-style top speed. Um, you know, obviously very, very harsh on the engine where it's just being constantly pounded for for minutes on end. Now, I'll just come back to to something you mentioned before that I just didn't want to uh, to skip over. You, you said about the ignition timing, and your your comment there was you know just a random number, say fifteen degrees on the dyno, and that's that's where we see MBT um, maximum brake torque timing. Um, and add more timing on the dyno, we don't see any more power. So okay, well 15 degrees, we'll send it out the door and and then we find that the engine comes back in a month or two months time and it's showing pretty severe signs of detonation related failure on the piston crowns. Now, a lot of people, particularly if they're relatively fresh to, to tuning, would say, well, the timing was fine on the dyno, so it didn't knock. There was no hint of, of detonation while I was tuning it on the dyno, so obviously 15 degrees is fine. Why isn't it fine when we get it out on the road? A lot of the information that we needed to know, we were already handed it. We just chose to overlook it. Like if you take a a box stock Evo and you put a wideband on it and you watch that wideband you know, go full rich as the engine is uh, put under heavy load, like they're using the fuel to, to cool the engine. So you've got to have a margin for error. Um, if you're using an aftermarket ECU and you're, and you're willing to really trust the timing pattern that every cylinder is getting the requested ignition timing during different rates of the engine speed and rates of uh, acceleration. Okay. That's, that's all good there. Well, does every cylinder in the engine have the same coolant flow? Like is one, is there a hot cylinder on the engine due to how the water flows through the engine, you know? So like on the Jay-Z, you have to be conscious and careful of uh, number six. Well, it's, it's the furthest away from the water pump. And then you get to looking at the water pump and how it flows water and the speed that you're turning the water pump. And you could say like, well, that's not doing much on a long run because the the water pump's cavitating, you know? So you you have to leave yourself some margin for error. Just because the engine doesn't rattle on the dyno doesn't mean that you're home free to experience the glory of a well-tuned engine. You still want to have a margin of error and maybe you leave that 20 or 30 horsepower on the table uh, for safety and you don't run the thing as edgy uh, or as hard as you'd like to because from a tuning perspective, 
the customer will always say, well, I want the most amount of power the engine will make. Well, he quickly forgets that as soon as he's, <laughs> as soon as he's calling for the tow truck, he's quick, he's quickly forgot that he said, just give me all you got. At some point you have to kind of father these, these younger guys a little bit because you want them to stay in the game. You want them to be having fun. You know, you, there's no fun in a broken car. Yeah, and I mean, of course, there's the reputation to to consider as well because uh, exactly what you're saying there, everyone wants the absolute last tenth of a horsepower out of their engine until the engine fails and they're faced with a hefty repair bill and then quickly the fingers get pointed at the tuner. I I was always of the philosophy, and and I I think I was reasonably rare in this. I I certainly didn't see too many tuners who who went down this path, but it's something that we teach in our tuning courses. Wherever possible, I would tune the car on the dyno and, and get everything dialed in, and then what I would also do is then confirm my tune out on the road, or preferably the racetrack if that was possible. And the the point I found time and time again, and particularly when we were running turbocharged cars on pump fuel, uh, you you do a pull on the dyno from two thousand to seven and a half thousand RPM over let's say ten seconds, and and that's going to produce uh, a certain amount of load and heat uh, in in the engine. And really, I'm not talking coolant heat here. I'm talking combustion charge temperature, essentially. And really, it's it's that that's going to drive uh, the onset of detonation uh, when that combustion chamber, the charge temperature, gets to a point where uh, pockets of unburned fuel and air will spontaneously combust. That's what we're trying to avoid. So we've got one situation on the dyno, but you know, you take it out on the road and you do a, a pull through second, third, fourth and into fifth gear. And by the time you're getting into the top of fifth gear, and let's not talk about the speeds we're doing because we don't need to worry about that, but that's a seriously different situation to what we see on the dyno. And, you know, I think tuners who are relatively fresh to this on pump gas can can overlook that and think that situation you just mentioned, well, it was good on the dyno, so we're good to go. Well, maybe, but but also maybe not, particularly if you've got an, an engine like a, a 4G63 that on pump gas is, is pretty prone to, to knock. Uh, the other aspect that I would say that that we see quite often as well with boost control is we might have a, a nice stable boost curve on the dyno maybe comes up beautifully hits uh, 22 psi let's say and then drops away a little bit by redline and, and happy days you know get that out on the road and if your boost control isn't dialed in perfectly that 22 psi peak might be 24 or 25 psi putting us into a different area of the map Lastly, I'd also say that even in a well-designed dyno cell, and I've seen yours, it's excellent, uh, it, it's very difficult to accurately replicate the airflow and temperatures that you're going to see at speed on the road. Now, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but you know we don't race and drive our cars on the dyno, so really it's the real-world conditions that we're interested in, which is why I went that extra step and tested my cars out on the street. And it's not only the timing, quite often I would also see minor fluctuations in the required fueling to get my air fuel ratio where, where I wanted it. So um, do, do you sort of see similar to what I've just explained? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if we just bring up how guilty we've been up until the past couple of years of underestimating just how slow an air temp sensor reacted, you know, y- you could just pick on that one sensor and you're like, ooh, because that sensor could have a six or seven second delay you'll never fully account for that without having good track data and good time. But, you know, 
that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like you don't want to have the engine that run that, that edgy. And from what I've taken away from Bonneville is, you know, fuel, uh, is your, is the cylinders first coolant, you know, the cooling system does its job with the heat once it's happened, but you know, a, a richer mixture is often your friend. If you, you know, if you have a car on the dyno and you run it at say 0.85 with a little bit of boost, you can tickle that knock sensor very easily. Whereas if you run the mixture down to say 0.75, you could be hard pressed to get it to knock at that richer mixture. So, you know, the engines aren't perfect. Uh, the combustion process is not perfect. If you dig through any sort of cylinder pressure data, you know, you can have fairly sustained temperatures and every once in a while there's a click, you know, well, you can't have an engine that's going to be perfect every single combustion cycle. So you had better error on the side of caution and you can still make a tremendous amount of power, but you know, you keep things a little, a little soft. Yeah. And I think that's really good advice. Just, uh, keep that little bit of a safety buffer in there. You're going to still make great power. You're probably not going to feel the difference of, you know, 10 or 20 horsepower under the right foot. It's probably not going to affect your ET or mile an hour significantly enough to, to really be, be bothered, but you're definitely going to be happy when that engine's still in one piece and going strong at the end of a full season of, of, of racing, I believe. Absolutely. Now, you've, you've talked about knock a few times here, and... Uh, this is something that I'm I'm seeing quite a lot of conversation about these days with, I would call it, and I'm showing my age here, uh, a newer generation of tuners coming through. Quite often uh, I end up in debates about uh, knock control and the irrelevance these days of, of knock detection in general. And I believe it's come from uh, the... The modern crop of tuners these days probably tuning anything you want to make decent power on. You're going to be most likely on either a race fuel, uh, methanol, or more likely even just pumpy 85. And and I think the qualities of those th- those three fuels that I just mentioned are so good. The effective octane rating compared to a pump gasoline, uh, as well as the cooling properties, make knock in many instances you'd you'd be hard pressed to make an engine actually suffer from knock so i think this is basically bred a, a sort of ignorance of of how dangerous knock can be and i think a lot of these tuners if they were tuning purely on pump fuel would find themselves maybe in a world of trouble to the point where they're not using knock control strategies in the ECU and they're not using any audio uh, knock detection strategies when they're actually physically on the dyno. I'm interested in what, what your take on uh, audio knock control or knock detection is, what you're using personally, how you go about detecting knock. Well, I'm super lucky to to really just focus on the MoTeC. And as you got into engines that had good crank triggers. So you have like a 36 minus two. The ECU is a competent piece of hardware. It's not something that is well written into advertising. It's actually a a race grade, professional grade ECU that knows where the engine is in its position. And it knows that if it has produced knock voltage, it knows what cylinder it was on because it knows where it's just been. You know, having that system has been really, really neat in comparison to some of the earlier systems that they could, you could wire in an aux sensor, but the ECU really didn't know where the engine was in its location. And as you go into alcohol-based fuels, the analogy that I always give is like, 
if you and I are in a room and I have a stick and I hit you with it, it's easy for you to make some audio and, and, and be in pain. But if I stuff a wet sock in your mouth and hit you with the same stick, like nobody's really going to hear you cry. And when you get into uh, alcohol-based fuels, there's so much fuel volume that you don't get that same ring out of the cylinder. And I've had customers that have shown me, say, a a piston that looks okay, but the small end of the rod is elongated and they've they've just got too much timing in it. And it's rich enough on, say, methanol that it doesn't knock the way a gasoline engine knocks. It's a different event. You can see it in the snout of the crank. You can see it in the face of the flywheel. You can see it in the main saddles of the engine that they're detonating. It's not the knock that we're accustomed to when you pull away from a stoplight and you hear a passenger car audibly ring. You know, So you have to be able to understand what the fuel uh, behavior is like in that engine and, you know, be mindful of what the engine, what the engine's actual timing requirement is like. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that will overtime an engine, you know, and you could, uh, I just helped the guy with a dragster not long ago that we're, we're six degrees back of where he started and the thing is faster and it's not, it's not breaking. And his initial response was, yeah, but it made more power on the dyno with the additional timing. It's like, yeah, but it went 600 feet and separated itself, you know, like you got to we've got to take into account all that, that boost is beautiful, but it, it comes with some heat. You know, the more boost you have, the more heat you're pouring into the cylinder. Yeah. I, I think it's always a, a case of people when it, when it comes to a timing map, well, if some is good, then, then more is better. And, and it's definitely, it's definitely not the case. Uh, and, I, and I think those who are tuning without the benefit of a dyno, uh, will will quite often end up well beyond MBT as well, just because obviously you've got no reference, you don't know where that is, in particular if you're running on some of these these better grade fuels as well. Yeah. Uh, I've always sort of been of the opinion when you're you're tuning these these very high output drag engines, uh, knock detection strategies. While I'll have them for a data analysis sort of perspective. Uh, I kind of tend to to find that the the sort of cylinder pressures you're working with at very high specific power levels, if you if you run the engine into knock for uh, even a relatively short period, the the engine's probably going to to let you know in a fairly significant way. So the knock sensor really isn't as important. You know, when you're starting to talk pump fuel, as I've mentioned there, moderate power levels, sort of a a decent street car, that that's where knock is probably or knock detection, in my opinion, becomes uh, a more valuable uh, addition to your ECU. You've, you've talked about the MoTeC there. These days, most standalone ECUs, as well as OEs for that matter, are including knock detection. And kind of like you alluded to there, I've seen the quality of that just come so far over over the decades I've been involved to the point where you know, very early factory systems couldn't do a good enough job of actually uh, the, the signal-to-noise ratio being able to actually detect knock from the background engine noise. So to the point where some of the systems, I think it was early Nissan, actually shut the sensor off above 4,000 RPM, obviously the exact place where we're really more interested in in finding knock. And you know, now as time goes past, you know, as you mentioned there, for those maybe who didn't quite pick it up, systems can now do individual cylinder knock detection. So you can actually see which cylinder is knocking. And if you're really sort of on the edge of trying to maximise performance, you, you'll almost always, at least in my experience, find one or maybe two cylinders that will start knocking a, a degree or two before the others. 
So obviously, if you're just looking at knock overall to prevent knock occurring, that brings down the the overall timing map that you can run to keep the entire engine safe. But if you know you've got that one or two cylinders that knock earlier, you can be a little bit more conservative on the timing there, ramp in another degree or so of timing on the other cylinders and, and then your overall output comes up while still retaining safety. Obviously here we're sort of also talking about getting towards that, that edge that you just mentioned earlier we want to stay away from but there will be circumstances I mean I've tuned some uh, some restricted production based turbocharged engines for road racing where you know to beat the other guy you absolutely need to be on that edge and that's where having the, the control strategies like that individual cylinder not control uh, really become much more prevalent. Now I want to just talk a little bit about dynos because obviously that that segues nicely into what we've been talking about so far. And uh, I, I know that at Real Street you've got a, a pretty epic uh, chassis dyno setup. Um, you've got a really nice video on your YouTube channel about the setup of that, in particular the sound deadening. Uh, um, off camera, off, before we started recording, you also mentioned that uh, you are just about to take delivery or have taken delivery of uh, an engine dyno. So I'm interested, you know, First of all, let's talk about the chassis dyno. What is it? What are the pros and cons of that which you have at the moment? We have a, a 424 dyno jet. So it's a it's a linked all-wheel drive system that you can run in two-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. The room is really, I can't say enough about the room, and I really wish that a lot of the guys that are um, doing calibration work for a living understood that the long-term health effects of breathing in the the fumes without good airflow. Uh, our room has extremely good airflow and you could work in the cell all day long and, and not get a headache. And when I first started, you know, I would do some travel work and stuff and, you know, you could, you could get yourself a two or three day headache if the fumes were bad enough. That's, you know, that's not good for your body. And if you're lucky, you grow into an old man and you don't want those types of problems to follow you. So the main advantage I feel for our current dyno setup would be uh actually health related because i've always got air to breathe in the cell and the engine's always got air to breathe in the cell you have um i i've worked in some facilities that you could run the engine two or three times and it would be down on power and you walk away from it for 20 minutes and the power's back well it's not that the engine was hot it's that there's no air left in the room you know the thing's eating its own exhaust external exhaust gas recirculation yeah, yeah, it's 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 its own problem there, but you know, I think that the problem that we have if we have a say like what do you what don't you like about your dyno? Well, when you get into high horsepower uh cars, you have to fight with traction. Like I've made 1500 or so, 15 or 1600 with supers on our dyno and I'm able to bring the boost in in a fashion that I can maintain traction and 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 produce a number that you know gets everybody excited but when you get into much over that uh controlling traction is a real obstacle so you could go to a a hub style machine which then you don't have a traction problem although i'm not super crazy about dampening the signature that the engine makes you know the dyno jets if you have a misfire if you have poor cylinder contribution you know you can make a fairly bumpy ugly dynograph whereas the um the dynos that i've been on that are uh you know have hub dyno with like you know four retarders or two retarders 
whew, man, you could have some things going wrong with ignition systems and the dyno sheets just look like they were painted with a protractor. Too much inertia there to mask the individual yeah. an individual misfire, for example. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, um, you know, dynos are incredible tools to have access to. You can save yourself a lot of time. I don't know that there's a perfect brand or perfect scenario. You know, if you said, well, what's the very best dyno you can buy? You'd have to say, well, what kind of work are you going to do? You know, because for me, if I had small displacement variable cam engines, like if I was doing a modern Honda Civic Type R, I have the wrong dyno for that work, you know, because I can't, I can't really get the cam time and all that stuff mapped correctly because I don't have a way to hold the engine at 25 RPM and just 2,500 RPM and move the cam around and look at the power output, you know, so each, each dyno definitely has its own, its own place in the market. Let's just clarify that that uh, aspect because with chassis dynos, we sort of can break them down further into uh, load bearing or inertia style dynos, and there's important pros and cons with each. So your dyno jet is what's referred to as an inertia dyno. So there isn't uh, an eddy current break or a water break or whatever that allows, as you mentioned there, to hold. Like I want to go to two and a half thousand RPM. Uh, I want to hold that irrespective of what I do on the throttle and that allows us to move through the map and as you mentioned there, optimise cam timing or ignition timing and at the same time the, the dyno will have a load cell that then gives us a feedback on torque and power so we can actually see the magnitude of the changes we're making. So an inertia dyno doesn't work like that, there is no uh, break, there's no load cell and instead it's a, a drum of a known mass and a known diameter by looking at how quickly it's accelerated over time, uh, they can calculate power and torque. So good for wide open throttle ramp runs, correct? Yes, because of its lack of complexity and inability to fudge the numbers, I think that uh, it's definitely earned its place in the market. You know, it's not an adjustable machine, which, you know, if you page through enough internet tuning stories, you'll find cars with 1,000 horsepower dyno sheets and 800 horsepower fuel pumps, and they have got <laughs> adjustable dynos, you know, so yeah. dynos, uh, ah, man, that dyno thing, it's, it, it could really get into some pillow talk when it comes to comforting someone uh, on how much power they want to see versus what it makes. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great place to start. You know, the, the truth will be told at the racetrack and you can simply just do the math on what the vehicle weighs and what its trap speed is. And then the, the debates should stop after that. But um, They never do though. <laughs> well, we're men. We do, we do those things. Coming from running a shop, I, I, I really feel the pain with trying to justify dyno figures to a customer who's maybe been built up by an internet forum or Facebook group where everyone is is spouting numbers from, let's say, a dyno pack, which we know reads reasonably high, and then you've gone in and run on a, maybe a dyno dynamics rolling road or a mainline rolling road. And I mean, having experience with both of those dynos, I, I know for a fact the difference is, is probably at least in the vicinity of 10%, if not closer to 15, where the rolling road reads lower. So that's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, we've got two numbers that they, they don't they don't add up. Right. And you know, you, it's hard to, to then go back onto the Facebook group and say to your buddies like, oh, well, yeah, it actually didn't make 800, it made 700. And um, yeah. you can feel bad about that. The, the reality is I see a dyno, it's, it's a tool. 
you have to understand that tool and understand the purpose of the tool. And for me, it's a, it's a comparative de- device. I mean, yes, at some point, we need to be able to relate it to known quantities of like this combination of parts I know should be good for X. We we're where X minus 20%, something's wrong. Obviously, that, that's that's something we need to understand. But beyond that, what I'm interested in is that if I do two back-to-back runs and I don't change anything, I want the number to be the same. I don't want to be chasing my tail with you know, a 5% variation run-to-run because then, well, did, did the change we just made did, did that make more power or was that the variation? So consistency is critical beyond that. I couldn't care less if it's reading horsepower kilowatts or, or fluffy unicorns. As long as I'm getting the same number of fluffy unicorns run after run, I'm going to be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I feel the same way. Okay, so beyond that though, you, you've got the engine dyno that's that's going to be uh, installed shortly. So what was the driver behind going from chassis to engine dyno and having both options? Well, in the short term, relatively selfish because whenever you're testing uh, components, you have to give a car up. So, you know, if you have your car stuck in testing jail, you know, maybe you don't drive it that weekend because it's got a specific fuel in it that you need that fuel to repeat on Monday And then you're working over the body of a car and whatever voltage or fuel delivery, these, these things that can hang up testing, um, they're pretty unattractive when you live with them for a period of time. So the idea with the engine dyno is you can work on the engine. If I, if I wanted to do a, uh, three different camshaft profiles in one day, well, it's a lot easier on the dyno cart than it is leaned over the fender of a car. A few years back, we did, it must have been 40 different turbochargers. And at the end, we never even published the data. It was more of just to know and to be able to see how things were going. But, you know, that was a lot of uh, down pipes, up pipes, charge pipes. You know, you're, you're, that's, all co- that's all a cost item. I think that we can streamline a lot of that process with an engine dyno. And that I'm really excited for because we could be able to provide a tremendous amount of value to the community through uh, testing with the engine dyno versus having to get different different cars to test different engines, so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's going to open me up a lot for uh, streamlining the process and being able to test different components without having to deal with the platform of the, of the vehicle itself. Sure. Uh, yeah, obviously having having the engine out of the chassis does lend itself to much easier testing of component changes, as you mentioned. There, you're not sort of leaning over an engine bay to to change a set of cams or something. It's you've got complete access around it, so that makes that makes perfect sense. Uh, what what uh, engine dyno did you end up going with? It's a Superflow Powermark. So dealing with small displacement engines you know there's there's engine dynos that can hold three or four thousand horsepower but they have really coarse control at you know with 120 cubic inch engine or coarse control over 10,000 rpm so we'll have the ability to run all the kind of engines that are in our wheelhouse and have good control over those engines through say a 2500 rpm to max rpm sweep and also what, what I'm really excited for, um, because I, I've gotten my head really deep into this Bonneville thing is just, I can just park the engine at, you know, 8,000 RPM and 40 pounds of boost. And as long as I can maintain water temperature, 
I can do extended time testing now. And it, you know, when you try to do that in an automobile, just to get the airflow and coolant to stabilize is, is quite a, uh, is quite a feat, you know, and, and like we talked about early in the discussion, if you cannot maintain temperatures, you know, the, all bets are off. It's just a matter of time before the thing starts to deteriorate. So having an engine dyno to be able to park an engine at peak torque, you know, I, I can't wait. I mean, I am really fully committed to being able to do some fairly dumb stuff just for fun <laughs> because, well, you know, how long can I park this thing at 50 pounds of boost, you know, and, and just watch it. And, and we can kind of go into the conversation that we're having here with longevity because, Longevity is like the responsible side of this whole conversation. Of course, we our egos want the horsepower and, and and the most we can make, but longevity is 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 really our friend when it comes to being able to play more often. It's just the part that no one really wants to talk about until it's time. Interested to just talk about the strategies around controlling that Bonneville engine, because obviously at the start of the run. You know, you can, you don't have that. Everything isn't heat soaked. And I mean, I'm not again talking about the the coolant. We assume that you're on top of coolant and oil temperature control. But again, it sort of comes down to getting that heat into the combustion cha- cha- chamber and then trying to trying to get rid of it. So, are, are you using a strategy um, like, for example, I mean, because you mentioned Motec, I know they have a function they call race timer, which is essentially the ability to trim just about anything you want based on the the how hard the engine's being run essentially just to put it in a nutshell so are you doing anything like that over the course of a, of a run like essentially starting to to richen the mixture to control combustion temperatures or is it just one size fits all the tunes the same from the start to the finish uh that's a good question um the race time was a, a dear friend of mine through drag racing because i could run the thing hot for four or five seconds and then kind of like tone everything down as we got closer to the finish line. Um, at Bonneville, um, I can use the MoTeC. It has um, like a calculated load and time under that load. So if the engine is at 8,000 RPM and 50 pounds of boost for 10 or 12 seconds, well, you could have different uh, Lambda targets and ignition timing based off of that uh, how long the engine's been at load because race time will sometimes get you tripped up if you... Um, have a bum start or if you pedal it you know the race time thing isn't always your friend where calculated load is a really neat thing to do because you could say like okay the thing's been wide open for 45 seconds what are you going to do about it and that's when you could start to really just you you try to run as much fuel through the thing as you can to cool it off you know fuel is is definitely your friend in that arena um, so just shy of having, you know, m- misfires, you know, you may run the thing at 10 O, um, mm. once it's an under, under sustained speed, because the, depending on the gearing of the vehicle, it may not be picking up a lot of speed, but you still need to finish that mile. The thing at Bonneville is like, if you set a good speed in mile three, you can do your good speed in mile three. So there's a couple of cars out there that are like blown alcohol cars that they're simply out of fuel in three miles. They can't go any further. You can't get any more fuel in the vehicle. Whereas um, the cars that I've been tinkering with are uh, are four and five mile cars where you're really relying on the ability to change the tune-up to keep the thing alive down track. You know, because by then the water is heating up, the the air inlet temperatures are heating up. So you're you're having to rely more on the 
the engine management to keep it alive. Just to give uh, our listeners a bit of perspective, in terms of, of a time, how, how long does it take to complete a five-mile run at Bonneville? I mean, obviously, it's going to depend clearly on, on how fast you're going, but you know, in the cars you you run, what, what sort of time frame are we talking minutes here? Uh, in the Roadster, it, it was like 45 or 50 seconds. So, you know, it kind of gets to, you know, having having done it firsthand, it's like you'll pass the the mile three thing, the mile three mark, and then you're just like looking at the tack and you're just like, ooh, we got a ways to go. You know, <laughs> I mean, that in the, in the streamliner, it was like just looking at the engine, you know, the thing was turning like 8,800 RPM. And I'm just thinking like, I got a ways to go here. You know, you really get some time to think about what you're doing. <laughs> and, uh, and that car I had mapped the boost versus throttle. I didn't have enough gearing to go much faster, but I was rolling my foot back out of the throttle because to, to lower the manifold pressure, because it wasn't going to go any faster. So I'd rather have it sitting at 8,800 RPM and 35 pounds of boost and 8,800 RPM <laughs> and 50 pounds of boost. I think that's probably where a driver with some mechanical sympathy and understanding can go a oh, long way gosh. to keeping the combination together. Yeah. yeah. Um, drivers where they've got no idea about the, the engine, the tuning, you know, that they're just going to be, you know, foot through the wall, keep it tapped until either it makes it past mile five or yeah. the rod goes out the block. Something no, like I don't that. have enough money for that. We're uh, com- compassionate to the mechanical components <laughs> involved for sure. It, it goes a long way. I, I still remember to this day, uh, I was involved in a four-wheel drive drag car here in New Zealand that at the time held the outright world record. And uh, we ran that car at a, a drag strip in Taupo one time. And um, I watched it go down the strip. And it had been running, I don't know, 185, 188 mile an hour pretty consistently in this one run. Still clicked off a, a high seven, but um, the mile an hour was like 156 or something. Like that's, that, that's usually a, a red flag that something's not not gone well in the second half of the track so I came back and um, it was it was a, the most the least spectacular failure I've ever seen um, no smoke or anything but uh, we we had a look under the hood and the, there's oil everywhere and it had mm. sent it right out through the side of the block so I'm looking through the data afterwards to try and sort of figure out what had happened and um, about the the thousand foot mark uh, the rod had gone out the block and it had just sheared straight through the, the main oil gallery. So oil pressure just dropped to, to basically zero. And um, what I couldn't get my head around is the driver was still at wide open throttle. And um, I was worried because I'd set up a, an oil pressure warning on the dash. So it should have brought up a, a, a red light to tell the driver there was a problem and then low oil pressure would be on the dash and he can back off and, and try and save the, the engine. So I, I said to him, I'm like, did, did, did you not see a, a warning on the dash? And he said, yeah, yeah, I saw the warning, but I was still beating the other guy. So, um, you know, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so that's the, the, the opposite of mechanical sympathy. Yeah. Right, let, let's, let's get on to talking a little bit about real street because I feel like at this stage we've, we've completely glossed over uh, that and got lost in the minutiae of, of your tuning and engine building career, which has been incredibly interesting. But, but real street, for, for me, has always been uh, an inspiration. I, I love 
the the level you work at and and the quality of your workshop as well as obviously the products you're you're providing um you know can you give us a, a bit of a 30,000 foot view of what real street is as it stands today you know what what sort of size is your facility how many staff have you got and and what services do you offer we are a really neat group of people you know there's a one of the partners, Mark, he's he's got uh, very much a, a a banker's wiring, so he keeps us out of uh, any sort of money troubles. And uh, Geo's just been a very robust sales hustler that you know, in the early days, was doing more than one person's worth of work all the time. And uh, my uh, partner Clay is very much an architect, and he he can kind of see that last piece of. Uh, drywall and where the light fixture is through these transactions and he's he's really a special individual and then um my other partner devin is is very much architect also but he has a lot of the background that i do so you know we have a very strong partnership and it's it's now past any sort of uh arguing or nonsense when it comes to it i mean we really have a family affair in that department and then the remainder of the company it's just upside of 40 people and we're in uh, 20,000 feet. If you're caught doing the wrong thing, you get walked out. I mean, we've, we've been really careful to not become problematic people in the industry. I mean, we have, we have integrity, you know, early on in this, it's like, well, if you just want money, you can get money. But if you want to go through your career and not have to look over your shoulder, you're going to have to follow a code of conduct. So I think that one of the things that's really served Drill Street well is having a good code of conduct. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's something that's really easy to overlook. And sadly, I would say is um, is not something that many uh, in the industry live by. I 100% agree with what you're saying, though, in terms of you, know, you want to be able to sleep at night knowing that you're doing the right thing by your customers uh, knowing that you, you don't, as you say, have to have to look over your shoulder. At, at, at this point in time, uh, what what are the services that Real Street are providing? Are, are you sort of solely uh, part sales at this point, or yeah, give, give me the sort of rundown there? Well, I guess you could say, in short, yes, we are we are mainly a distribution center for automotive parts. The longer version of it is every individual gets a lot of training. And if there is a situation where a customer calls in and that salesperson doesn't um, have the answer right away, it gets passed up to me. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of time. I will invest uh, time in people that are investing uh, time in us. So if we have a customer that called in and he, we had what he wanted and he, he got it. And that's the end of the transaction. We don't really see that as a successful transaction. Like I would much rather be a part of getting people to the finish line and getting them to say like, okay, well, I'm sorry we just met and you're, you're, you know, 30% into your build. I recommend that we, we change this now so it doesn't bite us later on and just really try to offer good advice because when I got into this um, industry, it was really hard for me to to work hard, to save up the money, to be misled. So one of the things that I've always wanted to avoid is just taking someone's money. Like, like well, the, you didn't really do anything for them. You know, the money's going to come and go. You, you want to be a, a 
a part of that individual's success. You want to, you want to be able to, you know, say like, okay, we helped that guy along, you know, he, he got closer to his goals. He got to the glory. Cause a lot of these guys building these cars, they're regular working guys, you know, like I'm a regular working guy. Like there's, there's dirt on my fingernails. You're like, this is how I live. So I don't, I don't want to um, ever be in a position where you're rolling somebody over to see what's in their wallet. Like we, we have a real hard line on that. We try to be involved in the process and help people avoid the pitfalls so they can play and play longer because what none of us in the industry should want is one time, uh, one time money. We're a small amount of the total population, you know, like the jokes that you hear in New Zealand, the jokes that we would see if we, you and I went to Mexico and we went and helped some guys down there. It's the same jokes, the same car guys, you know, we want to keep all these guys in the game, playing the game, having a good time. So try to have a very thorough approach on what does their project need? How can we do it in digestible bites and how can we be a part of their success? And that's, I think, really helped the long-term success of Real Street because we're much more into building long-term relationships than we are just a single transaction. I think that, again, is something that is very rare. Obviously, a, a lot of shops out there, all they're interested in is the dollar signs. And if you've got a, a thorough understanding, as you do, of, of what goes into a build and what parts are going to be required, it, it's it's always, this is exactly what we did through my old business. When a customer came in and said, you know, this, this is my, my goal. And the, the problem was often that uh, their, their goal was uh, probably a $50,000 goal ultimately and they had no idea that it was a $50,000 goal and and maybe at that time they had a, a $10,000 budget or maybe it was a $20,000 budget whatever everyone's obviously got a budget so it was a case for us of sitting the customer down and, and explaining what was involved in getting them to the finish line of where, where their project wanted to get to and, and maybe pulling it back if that was unrealistic because there's nothing worse than starting off on a journey and selling the guy all of the parts that he could afford now for that that ultimate goal, and then he's sort of left with a, a, a project that's one third completed, a whole bunch of parts he can't use, and now a car that's off the road, and it might be another three years down the track before he can actually complete it. So much better to actually pull that goal back to something manageable for his budget and requirements now, and, and maybe where possible future proof it so you can get it to the finish line. And I, I think that what you're saying there is so important that's going to be a customer that's going to come back to you and come back to you uh, time and time again and building up that that trust with the customer because unfortunately and this is why one of the reasons High Performance Academy was founded is it's an industry where I would see customers come into my old workshop and we'd never met them before and we had a good reputation and you'd sort of almost see them coming through the door expecting that they were going to get shafted because that's the expectation across the wider industry. There's so many snakes in the industry. And you know, you sort of had to had to build up that that confidence and and trust bit by bit. And you'd sort of see them turn turn around at the end and sort of, you know, they, they would they would fully trust and embrace what we were we were offering them. So yeah, I, I think looking at the the long term goals of the customer so important in in making your own business long-term successful as well what what i do see in terms of part sales particularly though and this this is back you know it's i haven't run my old shop now for probably 10 plus years but back then 
it almost seemed to be a, a race to zero margin because there were so many resellers coming online here in New Zealand and I assume it was all around the world and often a lot of these guys that were running these these online performance shops were probably running a day job as well and trading parts out of their garage or basement on weekends and after hours so I essentially had no staff and no overheads and were probably pretty happy to make you know five bucks or 50 bucks on a, on a part you know how, how do you kind of position real street where you're a viable business you've obviously got significant overhead significant staff costs how how do you sort of balance like being price competitive in the market with with still being able to actually uh, make a business work i think that um there's been a, a handful of people that have paved the way for a manufacturer to understand that if your component is sold down to zero margin, it often becomes a brand that nobody will touch again. And the, those brands die because, you know, it is what it is. It, I definitely don't have a lust for money, but I understand that it makes the world go around. But if those companies are sold at little to no margin, they just end up going out of business. And I am happy to be a part of a company that we have helped strengthen manufacturers through maintaining margins and there's a minimum there's a minimum amount of margin that the company needs to operate on a sales so if you had a component that was really really nice component but it doesn't have enough points in it to meet the business model we may just overlook taking that component on it's not really the number of things on a line card it's the strength of the line card as a whole and those manufacturers have to have a component that there's enough money in that they can help make things right if there is a problem. We've had customers that have um, grossly misused a product, and you know if they don't they don't know any better, or if they if they took it to a workshop that wasn't really um, experienced, and they damage a component, it sure feels nice to help that guy the the second time because our customers in the islands seem to face it the worst. I mean, if if you have a car that loses a loses an engine, that car may not run for one or two years. Like that's terrible. I don't. I don't want to see I don't want to see that happen to somebody, you know what I mean? So I think that Real Street has done well because we we have never tried to sell at the bottom and we've always just done right by people. And the manufacturers reward us for for being those guys and it helps us grow the line card over time because if you said, well, from a manufacturer standpoint, well why do we want to deal with you? It's like, well, just talk to some of the senior reps at some of these other brands and see how they feel about us. You know, that's generally enough to get them to understand how the transactions need to go, that it's a sustainable model. You know, if you, if you look back at some of the brands in the industry, they never recovered from what internet only sales businesses did to them early on, you know, and, and, and that's rough, you know, cause they were some pretty good brands and they just, uh, they got plowed over and, um, and people had to move away from them. You know, like the, everyone selling anything has to make some money. So there's a minimum requirement for the company to uh, to be involved in a brand. And, and, and there's a minimum requirement that that company has to sustain to stay in business. So I understand the race to zero, uh, the problem. And I think that uh, unfortunately, a dorm room guy can come into the industry and stay long enough to just hurt a brand. 
you know, and, and as soon as he figures out he's got to pay taxes, he's out of business. And, you know, and, 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 and you could get into the whack-a-mole thing, but fortunately for us here, I understand that conversation. I've had that conversation. It's not an enjoyable conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I could say, well, how could this ever, how could this ever work out? Well, since 2006, it's been working and we have a group of families that all eat out of this business and we play by the rules and, and, and we're rewarded for it. So I guess you could say like, yeah, there's a bunch of guys that are always going to do it the wrong way. I don't think that's ever going to change. Right. So, you know, that we, we could focus on the bad side of the conversation or we could focus on the upside. And the upside is like, we're, you know, you, me, and anyone else that's doing it right. We're very lucky to have careers that we're passionate about, you know, and, and, and have easily found common ground to have discussions because we're both into the same things. Mm. I think there's there's a couple couple of points I'll, I'll add in there. I think there's always going to be the enthusiasts who are going to buy the product that is the cheapest, irrespective. And I mean, I've experienced that sort of customer, and generally that mentality crosses over to everything they do with their builds. And I've been involved in a couple, and I'll tell you, they they just never work out well. And it kind of comes back to what we are talking about before as well. At the end of the day, that job goes poorly, not because of anything you as the part supplier or the workshop have done, or the tuner, whatever it may be, uh, has done. But inevitably, the finger gets pointed when things go wrong, and that affects your uh, reputation, which which can really be hurtful. And, and I sort of found that purposely holding a, a higher price point, and, and you know, not not to the ridiculous point, but a pr- higher price point that actually gave us the benefit of attracting uh, a higher quality of customer, which we weren't afraid to spend the money. We also, and and this is exactly what I see with Real Street as well. You've already mentioned you, you've got the knowledge and the ability to advise properly the customer on what they want for for their particular project. So they're getting the right part. And they might pay a little bit more for it than if they went internet shopping and literally just tried to find the the same part number for the lowest price. But I could almost guarantee that, you know, spending that little bit more upfront is going to save them compared to going to just buying the cheapest parts they can and then finding out the combination doesn't work for for what they want. So, you know, that that advice, that knowledge, that experience, I mean, you can't replicate that. Uh, for the pop-up dorm room reseller, so the, the, there's definitely that aspect, which kind of like leads me into your your own social media channel. So uh, your YouTube, you, you're obviously pretty active there in terms of your your education around the parts you sell and projects. So how how did that come about, and and how pivotal has that been on Real Street success? I think that it's been uh, extremely helpful to be able to share knowledge. And at, at first it was a little weird because if you um, hand someone this recipe that you've worked hard to earn, you know, you may feel like, well, how will I eat if I give away the craft? And my career has been a testament to like, there's plenty to eat, you know, and, and, and I can help people and I, I can't claim to know uh, everything, but there's a good amount of stuff I know about cars and I, and I can share that with someone. And if it helps get them to the 
the glory and the reward of their build, well, that's pretty rewarding. So being able to put information online and I mean, uh, heck, just until probably last year, I, I didn't even have to deal with the people that live in the comments section that are negative, you know, like this past <laughs> year, we had these guys, they got so upset about one particular subject. And I just looked back and I was like reading the comments. I'm like, it's a good thing the comments aren't a real place in life. I mean, it was like, oh, ew, guys. But uh, but I escaped horrible. that for over 10 years. It was great, you know? And I remember when we first got started, you know, there was a guy, uh, engine machinist, I think his channel was called Flat Nuts. And uh, he was just a guy that would, that would show machining processes. And I remember watching it being like, well, I could, I could do that with the information that I know. And it, we, we weren't in a machining business, so we weren't like a competing business to him. And uh, we just started it and, and it's always been very rewarding. And when I meet people out in public and they say like, hey man, like you really helped me do that. You know, these, these young guys that, what if you speed somebody up two or three years by sharing information with them? Like, man, everybody owes that to the world. A hundred percent. I mean, we, we obviously have a, a very similar situation. So uh, as you're talking there, I'm, I'm just hearing so many parallels to, to my own experience. And, and I mean, first of all, to, to the, the comment section, I mean, unfortunately, that is, that's just the, the byproduct of, of social media, regardless what platform uh, you, you happen to be on. And I, I unfortunately haven't been immune to it for, it was probably more like 20 plus years because we were using Facebook for my old business. Uh, and I think you just have to grow a bit of a thick skin to it and realise that people act differently because of the anonymity of the internet. You know, you'd never go up to a person in the street and say some of the things you see in the comments section. So you just have to get used to that. But I would say, say far and away, that's the 1% of people commenting or following us. And far and away, that that's, um, you know, the, the the positive comments come through time and time again just like you meeting people when I travel to the lights of PRI or SEMA and having people say hey look I really appreciate what you're doing that's so rewarding when we first started uh, High Performance Academy and we were starting to teach people how to tune I was still running uh, my tuning business and I had a, a couple of uh, colleagues in the tuning industry here in New Zealand say hey look what, what are you doing this is madness you're just taking business away from yourself and, and honestly it was it was anything but and I think what, what happened is as people got involved and, and started watching our videos and they'd realise, like, oh, actually, there's a bit more to this than, than I thought. So straight away, we actually developed inside of New Zealand a, another customer base that brought their cars to us to tune because they understood now we knew what we were doing. But then there's also just the, the ability to build up that that no like and trust you know we, we might have young followers who don't even have their driver's license yet and, and they're watching our videos and you know later on they've got a good base knowledge so that's important that's one of the reasons we started HPA was to just improve the level of knowledge out there in the industry so that when people take their cars to a workshop or a tuner to get tuned they're at least have a clue they're talking the same language as the tuner and that's going to make the whole project go smoother so for us if that happens that that's a success but then in future 
they know of us as a resource. So if they want to take their knowledge further than what we've got on our YouTube channel, well, we've obviously got our paid courses. And just like you, I'm, I'm guessing you're building up that know, like, and trust. They understand that you've got that knowledge. So when they're looking for parts for their car, well, obviously you, you, you're going to come up front of mind. So I think that's that's really important, but it does also take a, a huge amount of effort to produce that content. Now, just just interested, something that, that sort of comes up time and time again in the parts world is is knockoff components. And you know, at, at the start of, of my career, some of the, the knockoff components, let's say wastegates or blow-off valves, you know, it was pretty easy to spot them. They, they weren't done that well, and, and frankly, they fell apart. Uh, these days, the the companies making these knockoffs overseas are, have really stepped up the game, and some of them, like literally, the manufacturer has to post up a, a blog article with the the subtle three differences between the real item and the knockoff. So, you know, have you got any tips on on how to avoid buying a knockoff inadvertently? I would say um, your first line of defense would be to deal with a, a reputable reseller. We had one of the young men that works here in the shipping department. He had fake NGK spark plugs. And I was like, huh? He had a bit of a misfire and I pulled the plugs out of it and I was looking at it and the the shape of the ground strap caught my eye because the NGK ground strap has a very particular shape at its tip. And this one was more rounded. And you get to looking at this thing and aside from the ground strap, you couldn't tell a difference. And he had just bought the spark plugs off of eBay and he paid NGK pricing. It wasn't like he got a deal on them. So someone was just clipping the ticket for heaps more money. Oh yeah, for sure. So it's like, you know, if you look at the scale, I don't think a lot of us can really understand the scale of China's ability to manufacture components. I mean, they have entire cities that are just connecting rod city you know what i mean like you're, you're we're in deep at this point so the best line of defense would be dealing with a uh a reputable reseller you know because the especially if you're dealing with internal engine components like do you want to be the guy that gets a bad piston pin because now you're talking about catastrophic failure you know Definitely. so it, it goes back into that you know you get what you pay for and the as a as a grown up, you understand peace of mind and 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 the value that's presented through dealing with trusted channels. But when you're young and you know maybe you've got just under enough money to do it wrong, you have to be willing to accept that you're gonna you know you're gonna burn that money and and probably have to do it more than once, and it's gonna be really frustrating. Like I would like to see the percentage of people that come into this industry that they're unable to really understand the the scope of the project and and they cheat themselves out of a value and they grow old telling about what they could have done had they got their car finished. I mean that percentage is pretty ugly and it's like man if we just pick the right course, stay the course, you can get to the enjoyment and you don't really spend that much more money, you know, you're it's an increment that you won't miss because you're going to be busy having the fun. You know, so with the knockoff Definitely. stuff, you've really got to be careful with who you're dealing with in that regard. Faceless resellers don't have any responsibility to you. It's just like, uh, you know, if you've got a heckler online, that guy can just make a new account tomorrow and he's a different heckler. And you're like, how many, how many are these guys? You know, like the whack-a-mole type mentality, mm. it affects the whole industry. And um, 
from a customer standpoint, you know, especially as many of us are really a grassroots effort, you can't afford to do it twice and you can't afford to to have a component failure that there's no one accountable. You know, it's not like the aftermarket mm-hmm. has a great warranty system anyway. The best case you're dealing with is is dealing with people that are going to say, "Man, I'm I'm really sorry that's happening to you. Like, let me help." You know, and and maybe there's a ticket that you don't make any money on the ticket, but y- you help get that guy out of a bad situation. Well, that feels good too. You know, like you you got to loyalty goes a long way, that's for sure. You know, you're you're dealing with customers that will be loyal to you, you can, you can, you can kind of extend an, an olive branch to them and say like, well, let me help you then, you know? Yeah. It's again, just looking at that, that big picture, you know, you, you maybe help, help that person out and you don't make any money, like you say there, but you know, that loyalty is going to repay, repay you time and time again, because you've then got a customer for life. Yeah. Yep. All right, Jay. I think uh, I think we've probably gone a, a bit long here, so I think we'll, we'll start moving towards wrapping this thing up. I uh, do appreciate your time, and we we want to respect that. And uh, we we always finish our podcast with the same three questions we ask all of our guests. Uh, the first of those is what what's next in the future for you and for for Real Street? Anything sort of exciting coming up? Any changes of direction that you you want to let us know about? Um, we have been working pretty diligently to make our way into the UTV space. So for side-by-sides, there's three in-house turbocharged uh, UTVs that we've kind of been fitting parts and what fits well, what doesn't fit well, you know, like how does it live? How does it die? Like just trying to understand the foundation of that platform um, because some of the partners here are really interested in those. So we are. Uh, in the process of launching a uh, UTV segment on the website, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Clay had to work very hard to get all of that done and packaged in a manner that was as easily digestible and and as usable as our current website. So there's that. Uh, We are on the cusp of having the engine dyno functional. Um, The machine's here. The room is slated to be here um, within a a couple of weeks. I'm really excited for that because that's going to help me test more products. And then I could probably afford to miss a couple of drag races because I've been really jazzed up about Bonneville. You know, it's, it's something that is really hard to explain to people what it's like until you go, but it's really a group of incredible people and it's, um, it's just an incredible venue. And I, I don't know that it will happen this year, but I really would like to get into the 400 mile an hour club and just kind of like understand that the headspace of what your mind goes through while piling in a car at that speed is something I'm uh, more than a little curious about. So that's that's probably uh, the bulk of what we got going on. It's uh, exciting times ahead. Uh, definitely, uh, Bonneville also holds uh, a certain attraction to me. Never been there as yet, but it it's on my list. So we'll see what happens. Maybe maybe I might get over there and, and meet you there one year. Uh, next up, just given the the way your career has has sort of tracked and and everything you've experienced, is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself to perhaps fast track uh, your career and and maybe avoid any pitfalls that you've experienced? Uh, absolutely, I think that now that I'm a father, the dynamic is uh, quite a bit different. And when I meet these young people, I look at how I can help speed them up. 
because when you get to the middle of your life and you know that there's probably uh, more days behind you than ahead of you, you know, you have to kind of be um, aware of what that looks like. And I say to young people, the very best thing that you could do is find good mentors. You know, most of the young men that find their way into this space, they're passionately driven about cars. And for me, that was born out of, you know, living in a a household that struggled to make ends meet and, and cars were easy to be very passionate about. So I think for young people, finding good mentors, uh, find a mentor that has a really good reputation, a long running reputation, and, and then present a value to that person. You know, maybe, maybe the job doesn't pay good for the first couple of years, but you could learn a lot from that man. You know, th- there's a certain amount of internship that young people have to um, really buy into and I think the pace of the internet, the internet has certainly outpaced most human psyches and we get caught up in it. So finding the good mentors would be uh, the best advice I could give to a young person. I, I quite often get asked uh, how best to break into the tuning industry and, and obviously a bit like engine building it, it is a tricky one at the performance level to, to break into and just just like you've mentioned there um, my advice is is always try and find you know, a, a mentor and and so much I, i'm sort of talking here an existing dyno shop and maybe you start by offering to sweep the floor and get the cars on and off the dyno or you know attend race meetings and help out race teams always need uh help and maybe it's not going to be paid but you know if you're a diligent worker you'll very quickly stand out and you know the people who have been doing it for a long time I, I think we generally are, are, are happy enough to share and help out the, that younger generation if they show a desire to actually put in the work the hard yards and, and have a, a passion to, to learn so I think yeah that that's one of the fastest ways to, to get ahead for sure. Uh, last question for today, Jay, if people want to follow your journey, see what you're up to, how are they best to do so? Realstreetperformance.com is the main website. And then we have uh, links from there to Facebook. We're obviously on Facebook. We're on Instagram. The guys here were banging around on TikTok, making some fun videos. You know, So there's, there's the whole social uh, array of platforms until a new one pops up. We're on the major ones now. Yeah, nice. I will put some links to those in the show notes as well, make it easy for, for people to follow. All right, Jay, been really great to get some insight into uh, your background and Real Street. Uh, it's been an honour to have the chance to chat to you and uh, look forward to seeing you maybe hit that 400 mile an hour mark at Bonneville in the, in the not too distant future. Cheers. Yeah, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Jay, we'd love it if you could drop us a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get bigger and better guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too. I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to Graham Rosewarn and Graham has said when I first started watching HPA it's totally changed my mindset as an older man we always went off knowledge and reading of parts that most people don't use anymore. I've always listened to the podcasts as they are very knowledgeable, my father was a mechanic also so I just followed him into a field that I love. I thank you and all of your staff, kind regards. Well Graham, appreciate the kind words there, 
really does strike home that we are producing a podcast and our other content that's obviously hitting its mark. So really glad that you are enjoying it and keep watching and listening because we've got plenty more coming. If you get in touch with us, give us your size and your shipping details, we'll fire you off a fresh tea straight away. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get seven. off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.